The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. I said he should, there's consideration that he should be removed. You know, we have to complete the investigation. But, but to me, um, it's something that I think serious consideration has to be given to the removal. And we have complete authority to do that. With those words yesterday, Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Irsay set off what turned out to be in late afternoon into the early evening, into the late evening, uh, you know, d- discussion about whether or not yesterday was a tipping point uh, in the effort to get Dan out of Washington as the owner of the football team. Cooley's with me today. He does have some Bears film breakdown, and maybe we can talk about Taylor Heineke as well, who will get the start on Saturday, uh, on Sunday. Game's not on Saturday. It's on Sunday against the Green Bay Packers. Uh, today's show is presented by MyBookie. Your favorite athletes always strive to put themselves in a winning position, and it's time uh, that you did too with my bookie. My bookie's got the biggest online selection of odds and contests to fill out your sports betting needs anytime, anywhere. Bet on the NFL, the MLB playoffs, which were awesome yesterday. The Yankees advancing, Bryce Harper hitting another home run, Kyle Schwarber having Cooley. If you haven't seen the Kyle Schwarber home run from the National League Championship Series game one last night in San Diego, look it up right now as I'm doing the rest of this spot. It's an all-time home run. Uh, but they they've got lots of contests too, including including lots of blackjack tournaments at MyBookie. Uh, if you've been waiting for the right time to get in on the action, the time is now. Make your winning move today. Sign up at MyBookie. Use my promo code KevinDC. Claim your deposit match of any amount up to $1,000. Again, that's promo code KevinDC at MyBookie.ag to claim your bonus. Experience sports in a whole new light and make this season a winning one. Uh, as we will talk about football, which is my preference um, more than even talking about Dan Snyder, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like it, um, there is coolly one line that absolutely, two of them that absolutely reek uh, for the weekend. And I'm looking at the my bookie point spreads right now. The Giants are five and one, and Jacksonville is two and four. What do you, the game is in Jacksonville. What do you think that line should be? Five and one team against a two and four team. I guess the Giants are a five and one team that are not just destroying teams. So I, you're going to have a pretty tight line on that thing. You'd think the line would be, you know, six 
ish, but I'm assuming that you're going to say it's like two. The Jags are three point favorites. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think they might be in the smell test. Um, that um, one might fit the smell test to perfection. Yeah, Jacksonville minus three. The Washington Green Bay line, I have seen in some spots it's come down to four and a half, five. At my bookie right now, if you want to play Washington, you can get them at five and a half um, at my bookie. Uh, The other line, by the way, that I was going to mention that really reeks to me is that Ole Miss is the seventh-ranked team in the country. They're undefeated, and they are a a one-and-a-half-point underdog at LSU. Um, and LSU played better last week. They beat Florida, but the week before that, they got blown out by Tennessee. It's not, you know, it's not your father's LSU team, uh, even though I think they're starting to play better, but they're favored over Ole Miss. I mean, a team with two losses is favored over one of the few remaining undefeated teams in the country. And the uh, team that isn't undefeated is favored. So I kind of like LSU. I, I like LSU as well. I like talking about football and sports rather than what we're going to talk about. But we have to talk I like about talking it. about football and sports, too. I, I, I think watching Tennessee beat Alabama was my favorite moment in sports this year. <laughs> it was great, wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. The couple plays they make to end that game, especially after Alabama got the fumble six, scored, Tennessee battles back, and they go for two, and the tearing down the goalposts and the, just the elation. That's what sports are. You had so much of it on Saturday, too. Excitement of a program. Oh, yeah, Saturday was fun. Saturday was great. Uh, and to see a program like that that has had, you know, basically 20-plus years of not being what they were for a long period of time, but still having the passionate fan base that, you know, it's like one of those pent-up, sleeping giant fan bases like if somebody could come in and figure it out and and they could get good again that place is going to be as good as any place in America Nayland Stadium had what was it 111,000 or whatever it was on Saturday there were probably you know a couple of hundred thousand people just outside of the stadium hanging out tailgating all day long specific to the game though you were watching the very end of it you you watched this this game all the way to the end I would have liked to have watched from start to finish. I was in Bozeman, Montana in a swimming pool watching my kids swim while I was trying to watch it on the TV at the bar. <laughs> okay. So, but it was an insane game. Insa- I mean, I, I've seen I, – I did watch a ton of it. Insane game. It's, I was talking to Scott about this the other day, Scott uh, Van Pelt, who was on the podcast the other day. The end of the um, – so Alabama, it's 49-49, and Alabama gets it into field goal range at the Tennessee 32 on a Bryce Young play. He's great, by the way. He's so good. With 34 seconds to go. And then on three straight plays, they throw the football. Um, and it's three incomplete passes, and they end up at the Tennessee 32-yard line kicking a 50-yard field goal that was missed that left 15 seconds on the clock and also left Tennessee with two timeouts left. And that's why Tennessee was able to throw two passes to get into field goal range for the game winner. My point would be, and I felt this way watching it, 
they should have run the football. Alabama should have run the football to, you know, get it closer for a closer field goal to also force Tennessee potentially to, to use their final timeouts in the hope that they would get the ball back again um, if there was a made field goal or even if there was a missed field goal. And instead, three incomplete passes, leaving Tennessee with enough timeouts. And Nick Saban, while a legendary all-time Mount Rushmore-esque coach, last year against Texas A&M, he went to the locker room with all of his timeouts and didn't use them as Texas A&M kicked a walk-off field goal. And people were astounded that a Nick Saban coach team didn't use his timeouts as they were approaching field goal range to get the ball back if the field goal went through. And my contention at the time was this is a guy that, you know, over the course of his career has played very few games in which he was trailing or tied and needed to use his timeouts on defense. And... I just don't th- – it's weird, and we're talking about Nick Saban, but, you you know, we've all talked about for years how many of these coaches just don't know what they're doing. They really don't know what they're doing. Last year, Texas A&M walked off with no time left on a 28-yard field goal, and Alabama went to the uh, locker room as a 41-38 to loser with all three of their timeouts left. And by the way, when A&M got the ball down to the Alabama like 30-yard line, there was 50 seconds left in the game. So they were already in field goal range. And then this year, he could have run the football, made Tennessee use their final timeouts, um, or if Tennessee chose not to use them, the clock would have rolled down to where it would have been a walk-off field goal, and he either makes it uh, and gets game over, he misses it, it's overtime. But instead, he left all right. that time on the clock, and Tennessee hit two big passes with two timeouts left and got a field goal off, which, by the way, the field goal barely went through from 40 yards away. It was a knuckleball that went through. Oh, it was – yeah, that was unbelievable. The kick – actually, I made my wife and kids – we got back to the room. I made them watch the last 10 minutes of the game. Right. And we were sitting there talking. I said, how, how do you feel in this spot as the kicker? I mean, that dude has got to be – that's as pressure of a spot as you can get. I know. He does. I don't know how that ball ever goes through. The way he hit it nine times out of ten, that ball doesn't go through. Did but to your point of running the ball, the last drive that Alabama goes down the field on, they Tennessee is covering nobody. I mean, there are open receivers everywhere. Well, they had to convert a third and ten to get into field goal range. So he had thrown. No, I understand yeah. that. No, I, I understand, but I, Tennessee has got dudes just open. They're bringing pressure. Oh, you're they saying te- you're saying Tennessee's? Home. I thought you were talking about sorry, Alabama's sorry, no, 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 excuse me, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Tennessee is covering nobody. Alabama is gashing them with pass. Tennessee is bringing pressures. They're trying to do anything they can to get to the quarterback. They're not getting there. Dudes are running six yards open. Yeah. It's a great. I, I, so, you, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, do you run the ball or do you just go down and score? And I, they ended up getting stuck. And I, I think it was probably in that moment where the offense was operating on such a high level that Saban was just saying, hey, "You're good. Call call what you want to call." Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it, I don't know, but yeah, I, I mean, you don't see a knuckleball like that go through very many times. Not the way that dude hit that kick for Tennessee. I was pretty happy for him. Yeah. Uh... I think. I think like moments like that are so good for college football. 
and it's, I mean, Alabama's amazing, but it's always fun when you see something like that. And and you got to bet, what, 95% of America, not Alabama, is on Tennessee's side there? Tennessee, t- Tennessee was not only the you know preferred uh, team to win that game by just you know general sports fans and college football fans, football fans, but they were also the most bet on team on Saturday. I had Bama, um, so I was actually hoping for overtime because I had actually played them minus seven. The game went to like eight and a half nine before kickoff, uh, but um, anyway. Yeah, no, no, no. It was it was a cool moment. My niece goes to to Tennessee. She she was. Um, she had a ticket and she did, uh, but her friends didn't get tickets. So she decided to go to a bar with her friends and watch the game and give her ticket to somebody else. (laughs) I told my sister, I said, that was, that's, that's a nice friend thing to do. Um, but, uh, and I went down there a couple of years ago, uh, not for a game. Um, but, uh, we were down there and it really is, it's, I don't know. I think sometimes I think all of these schools are really nice. Tennessee and Knoxville is awesome. It's a great school. I mean, it's a oh, really yeah. cool school. I don't know what it is academically. I think it's much better than it maybe at, at one point was. It's a good school academically. It seems like all of these big state football schools in particular have gotten really, really good academically. I think I talk, talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Tommy about the state of Virginia, and I pissed a bunch of Maryland people off. So I, I won't talk about colleges anymore. But Knoxville's a cool oh, yeah. place. And it was a great game, and it was a great Saturday. And, uh, yeah, college football is awesome right now. Really interesting, too. October's fun. October's fun for sports. It's great. Did you check out the Kyle Schwarber home, home run that I told you to look for? Did he? I did. <laughs> I did check it out. So It's always nice when it leaves you back like that. So that was in the stat cast era where they, you know, measure exit velocity and, you know, measure the actual um, uh, length of the home run. That was the um, the hardest hit ball since 2015 in any playoff game. The exit velocity was 120 miles per hour, and the 488 feet was the longest home run in a postseason game in the stat cast era. It was an absolute bomb. I mean, and that thing was upper deck, and players were even talking, you know, today I saw some quotes from players who said that played for San Diego that they've never seen a ball hit to that part of the park because Petco is a tough park right. to hit home runs in to begin with. Um, so well, that wasn't tough. He hit that one into the cornfield. Harper had another home run. He's got four in the postseason. He's having – He's having an outrageous uh, playoff run, hitting 407 with four home runs and seven RBIs, home runs in three straight games. I was, I was actually, I think I've told you before, like I'm, I'm a big fan of Bryce Harper, and I have been, and I kind of follow him from afar, and I'm rooting for the Phillies. Uh, you know, I wish you were still in the Nats. But I, I forget it, uh, whether or not you ever got to know him or not. Did you or not? Never. Okay. Ryan Zimmerman was the one that you knew really well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you got some football to talk about from the Bears game and some other things, but I think, you know, let me go first on this Ursay thing because you're, you know, you're not following the day-to-day. I know you have some thoughts and you, you know, you, you followed the news yesterday or you certainly went through it uh, today. So, 
there is this thought that yesterday Jim Irsay being the first owner to publicly say there's merit um, in removing him as an owner and to suggest that maybe they have the 24 votes to oust him was like this tipping point. And I'm not saying that I didn't feel like when I heard it, it, it that it wasn't significant. It is significant. Rarely do owners turn on each other publicly. That's a, that's a rare thing for that to happen, especially in that sport. However, what bothered me most was the follow-up um, the rest of the day. And the follow-up included the press conference that Roger Goodell had after day one of these league meetings, um, which was you know, primarily a press conference dominated by questions about Dan Snyder. And what he said multiple times uh, was, we need to let speculation be speculation and not comment on speculation. We have to wait for the facts. He said multiple times during this press conference, basically, we have to wait until this Mary Jo White investigation is completed. Here's one of the lines from the press conference. Um, It's an ongoing investigation. That's what we talked about. There are no interim reports. We've gotten no interim reports. We, 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 we would provide any, but we don't have them. When Mary Jo White is done with her investigation, we will share that with membership and share it publicly as we committed to it before, as we committed to before. And I was very clear with them that there's no reason for there to be any speculation at this point. Uh, in time or discussion until we have the facts. And so that was my message to the ownership, and there was little or no discussion. Now, no other owner, other than Jerry calling it a media-inspired thing on Dan, really ended up commenting. They all walked by every reporter, and they would not comment on any of this. Shad Khan, the owner of the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, did tell... Albert Breer, who had a story on this, that he just thinks it's fair to let the investigation finish and the facts to come out. The team statement bothered me. They had two of them yesterday. Um, The first statement that they sent out was an immediate response to Ursay's public, um, you know, uh, comment about Snyder. And they put out a, a statement that wrote, It's highly inappropriate, but not surprising that Mr. Ursay opted to make statements publicly based on falsehoods in the media. It is unfortunate that Mr. Ursay decided to go public with his statement today while an investigation is in process, and the team has had no opportunity to formally respond to the allegations. The commanders have have made remarkable progress over the past two years. We are confident that when he has an opportunity to see the actual evidence in this case, Mr. Ursay will conclude that there is no reason for the Snyders to consider selling the franchise, and they won't. That was the statement from the teams, uh, from the team and the team's attorneys. Then the team put out a letter that Dan sent to the other 31 owners that read, I hope that you and your family are doing well. Like, you know, dear Bob Kraft, that, that the names were redacted. I would like to address address a recent ESPN article that contains false and malicious statements about the Washington Commanders, our management team, and me and my family. It is particularly shameful for ESPN to diminish the very real accomplishments of our president, Jason Wright, who ESPN alleges was placed at the Commanders by the league and has no power to make real change. 
I know you know this to be false. Unfortunately, ESPN ignored our efforts to correct the many falsehoods in their article before its publication. There is one allegation in the in the ESPN article that I feel it's important to address, to medi- address immediately. The article cited unnamed sources who said they've been told that Snyder instructed his law firms to hire private investigators to look into other owners and Commissioner Goodell. That is patently false and intended to erode the trust and goodwill between owners that I take quite seriously. I've never hired any private investigator to look into any owner or the commissioner. I've never instructed or authorized my lawyers to hire any private investigator on my behalf for any such purpose, and I never will. While we are all fierce competitors on the field, we are part of this organization because we love football, our teams, and our fans. Having the privilege to own a franchise in America's sport is something I know none of us take for granted. Falsehoods and lies spread about any of our organizations hurts the league, our players, and our fans, and we simply cannot let them go unchallenged. Thank you for taking time to read this. If you have any questions, Tanya and I are always available to answer them, and we look forward to discussing these issues with you at an appropriate time. So let me tell you what I think right now after kind of setting it all up there. What bothers me are a couple of things. Number one, um, the insistence of the investigation, the Mary Jo White investigation. Dan, the uh, original statement back to Ursay, Mr. Uh, uh, while, while in Mr. Ursay decided to go public while his state, with his statement today while an investigation is in process and the teams had no opportunity to formally respond to the allegations. Roger Goodell talking about speculation is speculation. We'll wait for the facts. We'll wait for the Mary Jo White investigation to end. You know, even in this letter, um, you know, uh, that he sent to the, uh, uh, to the other owners, they talk about, like, this, this ESPN story and the Jason Wright hiring and and the uh, accusations of private investigators, etc. By the way, I'll, I'll point out that the article never actually said that they had proof that Snyder uh, hired private investigators to investigate six owners, including uh, Roger Goodell. It said that Dan said that he was doing that. And in this letter, I'll point out that what he denies is everything other than whether or not he actually, you know, in a, in a moment of bravado or, you know, Napoleonic complex or whatever, said, oh, I'm investigating the hell out of everybody. They better watch out. Who knows what he, what he said, um, you know, in, in one of those impulsive moments. But he doesn't, and nobody's asked him, um, and nobody's pointed out really uh, enough that they never said that they had proof that this happened they reported that Snyder said that that's what he had done. And in this particular letter, he said, I've never hired any private investigator. I've never instructed or authorized my lawyers to, and I never would. What he doesn't say in that is, I never said that I did it. Um, but that's really immaterial as well. Here's my major overarching uh, theme, a Cooley and Kevin favorite overarching theme. This can't be about the Mary Jo White investigation. This is a missing the forest for the trees. They're pushing this discussion into this Mary Jo White investigation, and what comes out of that will be the driver in terms of what happens. 
Mary Jo White's investigating these Tiffany Johnston allegations, a, a, a pure he said, she said, with the exception of the Jason Friedman saying that he saw Dan push her into the car, a guy that's actually lied under oath and has major credibility issues himself. Meantime, Friedman and his allegations of financial impropriety with, you know, not refunding season ticket holders on their, uh, you know, on their initial down payment and deposit, and then all of this stuff about holding money back from the league that was due the league from ticket revenue. Um, There may be something there, but it's very possible that Mary Jo White will conclude nothing. In fact, the odds are probably in favor that she'll say, there's some stuff here, but I can't tell you definitively that Dan sexually harassed this woman, and I can't tell you definitively whether or not he ripped off the league or ripped off uh, season ticket holders. And my problem with all of this, Cooley, is that this isn't the issue. You know, the last the, the, the team constantly talking about the last two years, things are so much better. Who gives a shit? This is, none of this has been about the last two years. The fact that we're now just waiting and relying on Mary Jo White's investigation when there are another five to six investigations going on. And, by the way, nothing that she finds is going to take away from the facts that this was a very toxic workplace culture, as as Beth Wilkinson concluded and Roger Goodell stated when they fined the team $10 million and gave Dan a quasi-suspension. Like, I kind of feel like, what are we doing here? What are we getting set up for? I, I Maybe I'm overly skeptical here, um, and maybe yesterday was a tipping point. But the emphasis on the Mary Jo White results, relying on that, is a total misplacement of the importance. The importance of all of this, the emphasis should be on why a once- profitable, passionate, incredible NFL market of fans is now gone. And it's not coming back until he leaves, whether her investigation produces something or not. The league, if it thinks that somehow the Mary Jo White investigation, or if the team thinks that if Mary Jo White doesn't find anything conclusive, that everybody's going to say, oh, well, Dan was right. This is great. Let him continue as the owner. It has nothing to do with any of this. The big picture is this market is gone as an NFL market. It doesn't exist anymore in terms of anything remotely resembling what it was. The league knows that. That's why they want him out. Every owner knows it. That's why they all want him out. Every owner, do, I mean, a lot of the owners don't like him personally, and there's a personal animus involved in all of this as well, which, by the way, you should separate. The bottom line is they can't get this market back until he leaves. A new stadium isn't going to do it. Mary Jo White's investigation isn't going to do it. Winning isn't going to do it. It might do it to a certain degree, but it'll never come back until he's really gone. And even that at this point, I've said this many times, and many of you pointed this out to me yesterday on Twitter, and I understand what you're saying, and I, I agree with you. The name change basically was the death knell for a lot of people, whether Snyder's here or not. I do understand that a lot of people are never, ever coming back, that that was the final nail in the coffin. 
But if the league wants any chance of resuscitating this market and turning it into a big revenue generator, a lifetime genera- uh, uh, revenue generator, and having it be a market that they can be proud of in the nation's capital, he has to go. It doesn't matter what these investigations produce. Last point, two points. Number one, the Beth Wilkinson investigation, he has already been punished for that. The league considers that to be a matter that's been resolved. The $10 million fine and the quasi-suspension. Okay, they've spoken to that. And they admonished him publicly with the statement from Goodell in June of 2020. All of the release the report people, I hear you. I'd like to see the report too. But there isn't a report, although we all know that Beth Wilkinson could recreate the oral presentation that that, that she gave to Roger Goodell. And they could redact the names of all the people that did not want uh, that wanted anonymity for the um, uh, if they were to come forward and and be interviewed by Beth Wilkinson, there is a way to get all of those details out. But they consider that to be a matter that's been put to bed. But the last point is this: I understand that if these investigations don't turn up like silver bullets, like a true proof of sexual harassment or some sort of comment that he made that was insensitive racially or um, some sort of financial impropriety where he really was stealing from the league. If it doesn't produce any of that, my big picture, it's not about all that. It's about a market that's gone and only one way to potentially get it back, which is his exit, that owners don't get run for that. You know, he's a bad owner, an incompetent owner, one of the worst in the history of professional sports. He's ruined what was once something very sacred and special to a city, a major city in this country, the nation's capital. It no longer is. There are a few people hanging on, but those people will never leave. It doesn't matter what happens. It's an embarrassment to the league. It is a an underperformer, but... So were the New York Knicks many years. So were the Cardinals for many years. So were the Colts for many years. It's very hard to run somebody who wants to be here for just being incompetent. So I'm overall still skeptical that this is going to lead to his ouster, even though if they really understood big picture, and I think they do to a certain degree, they just need to convince him to sell. They need to pass the hat around and come up with an extra half billion dollars and get him out. He can sell it for five and a half to six. The owners come up with another half billion to say, here, this is what we'll do if you'll leave. Uh, But I don't think he's going to. I think his heels are dug in, and I'm skeptical that the Mary Jo White investigation is going to provide um, the information that Jim Irsay can say, see, told you so, let's vote. I hope I'm wrong, but that's where I am. That was long-winded, but I wanted to get that in because it was a major new thing since the show ended yesterday. What are your thoughts? Well, there's so much to it. And it's so interesting to me that this is going to continue to be in the media every four days, every five days, which has been for over a year. And the Mary Jo White, investigation is still not done 
Like, when is the Mary Jo Waits investigation going to be done? Goodell, it be done tomorrow. Goodell said that it's they, be done he has no Goodell idea. Wants it to be done. Yeah, but it, it's really it's going to be done when Goodell wants it to be done. Yeah, I don't know. If, Goodell, if, Goodell if, said if that, that wants to push it. If the NFL says, yeah. "Hey, this due date is next week or in two weeks," summarize and let's put it together, and I want to see what you have. And if there's anybody else that you need to talk to, you need to go talk to them. And if they're not going to talk now, they're probably not going to talk. So, but the thing about it not being done and some of the investigations, as long as they've taken, really leads me to believe that there's another path that they're looking at. I, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm, I'm with you on the Mary Jo White stuff. It's, some of it's going to be hard to, to, to prove with any certainty that anything happened. So it just seems to be that they're letting that hang out there because there's something else. I'm not, I'm not sure where they're going or where, where the House committee was going with it or where anybody's going with it, but it seems that there's something else. I've told you all along, and I've said this the entire time, I don't know if they find anything that really definitively says he, he has got to be fired, like the Jerry Richardson stuff. Right. I just don't think that's available because I just don't think that's really there. There's a... There's an entire boatload of things that happened that are that are like a million little nails in the coffin that could potentially seal the deal. But I don't know if that also I don't know if that gets it done. Where I'm really on the same page as you is every aspect of the NFL below ownership is a production league. GMs get four to five years. Head coaches get three to four years. Players a lot of times get two to three years. And if you don't produce and you don't perform, it's immediately, it's immediate that you're going to be moved on. You fire you for that. And I think it's really fascinating when you start looking at talking about or looking at and talking about a, a an, organi- an organization diminishing the way that Washington has diminished, especially over the last 15 years and the last 10 years, to where they're the bottom of the revenue stream for the NFL. And that is not what the rest of the owners want. Now, there's still a major market team in terms of value. And I, you and I had this conversation a couple of years ago, and you said the value will never go down. Uh, in terms of buying a franchise in Washington. And, you're, and maybe you're right, because at $5.5 billion, it certainly hasn't. It's only went up over the last 10 years. Right. And there are other organizations that would not sell for that, because you know that Washington could and should eventually produce a top 15 income, if not a top 10 income. Well, it was, it was number one at one point, one, 1A, 1B, Washington and Dallas. I understand. And it's number 32 right now. And it's to your point, it's not going to get better. And if we, we talked about the Tennessee game and a sleeping giant of a fan base with over 100,000 fans rushing the field. And right now, if Washington's 6-0 and and they beat Dallas, it, like 44,000 people are going to smile and walk out of the stadium calmly. <laughs> I mean, winning would help, and winning a Super Bowl would help. But it's also it's impossible to win a Super Bowl when you can't produce and you haven't produced over a 25-year period. And you continue to do things and, and be a part of this franchise. Like, I think it's funny. 
you know, in Goodell's, in Goodell's press conference, he says that there's been no change in status with Dan since Tanya took over the day-to-day. Except there has, because it was leaked a week ago that Dan was the one that got Carson Wentz. Yeah, that they pushed back heavily on that, obviously, and, and Ron did as well. We talked about that the other day on the podcast. I understand yeah. that they pushed back, but you understand that Dan believes that he got Carson Wentz. I know. Well, so Dan you, still believes that he's Dan still believes yeah. that he's acquiring quarterbacks. Yeah, you told. Yeah, right. You've said that. So there, there. Honestly, there's been no change in status ever. You know you, what you just said. Let me interrupt real quickly. See, I think you know some of this stems from, uh, including like the private investigation thing is that he's always trying to be, you know, the guy. You know, you, uh, there have been many uh, people, and I'm not, I'm not going to put you on the spot, that, you know, he, he's, he's a narcissist. He wants the credit. So the possibility that, it, we, that he was out there saying, I got Carson Wentz, you know, we got him. I, 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 I told Ron, told him that we got to get Wentz, and, and we got him. You know, it's like, okay, he wasn't watching the film, as Ron said, breaking down the analytics in Indianapolis. Um, I'll tell you one thing. There's no doubt in my mind, based on the trade, there's no doubt if, in my mind if somebody said he was involved, I, was, I would have said, of course he did, because he way overpaid like he always does. Um, but anyway, uh, continue. So, but, I, I, you know, without saying anything other than you're not producing, you're not generating revenue anywhere near what you should be. In fact, you're the worst. I think it's fascinating that the owners could not just vote and say, you're costing us money, and we'll make it just about that. <laughs> Period. I'm so with you. But, but they I, won't. I, I but they won't. Fascinating, and maybe... Yeah. And maybe there's something that, because of this, that they enact and say, look, if there's somebody that owns one of these franchises that really doesn't fit the bill and doesn't step up and doesn't make the right moves over a 10 to 12 to 15, even a 15-year period, we have the right as a group of owners but they don't. to simply vote, and that is, that is written in. Conduct- it's amazing that they... Don't. Well, con- well, because, you know, there's just too First of all, there are many organizations that are lovable losers and there's still a fan base for it. This one is the opposite of that, clearly. But it's it's all, you know, in there. It, 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 you have to it's it's conduct detrimental at, at a level that far goes beyond wins and losses. And, you know, free agent acquisitions and trades and coaching hires and, you know, it, but but to your point, he has the, the running of this franchise. If we take all of the workplace stuff out of it, which, it, you know, the league admitted after the Wilkinson investigation that the place was toxic, you know, so but the problem was none of the direct allegations of harassment or misconduct were levied towards Dan. He just oversaw it as the chairman of the board and the CEO, et cetera. But really the, the most, I'm, and let me put this delicately because I don't want anybody to think that I'm minimizing the importance of those that worked in that building that felt harassed and were victims. Okay. Because there clearly were, 
and there was at least one victim that the the, the team felt strongly about that they paid her. Uh, you know, they had an insurance company pay her one point six million dollars. And then tried to pay her again, according to reports, not to talk to Beth Wilkinson, the $1.6 million plane ride back in 2009. Um, But really, the conduct detrimental is the evaporation he has uh, caused of the interest in the team in a market that used to be one of the, if not the premier markets in the league. That's the conduct detrimental. But I'm with you. It's so bad, it goes well beyond just a poor performing owner. Because it's the poor performance of the owner and on the football side, and then it's the poor performance of the owner as an overseer of a culture. You could combine it all and just say, dude, you're terrible for us. You're terrible for your city. There is so much, there's more contempt for you in your city than there's ever been for any owner in the history of our sport, with the exception, actually, ironically, of one. And that is Jim Ursay's father, Bob Ursay, who snuck out of town in Baltimore and moved the Colts to Indianapolis in 1984. Um, you know, the Baltimore will never forgive the Ursay family for that, but that's, that's a different thing altogether. There's, there's no owner in the history of this league whose city has despised the owner more than this one. And it's not it's it's performance, it's one it's one playoff win in a cent, in this century so far. It's a record that, you know, is like 60 games under 500. It's never having won more than 10 games. It's one PR embarrassment after another. It's one, you know, consumer insult and taking advantage of your customers uh, in in so many different ways over the years after another. Um, and then also you have all of these workplace issues, which, you know, have come to the forefront in the last two years, which may not hang him because he wasn't directly involved. But you put it all together. Why can't they just say to him, get out, just leave six billion, maybe we'll put yeah, another. So, I, so here's the thing is, I think they can do that. They need the, the 24 votes, but they're concerned about a couple things and I, th- I think initially the Wilkinson report was kept the way it was kept and potentially the Mary Jo White because you don't want to lend your organization to potentially be looked into by the House Committee or by any investigative reporters or anything that's happened in your organization since 2002. None of those guys want that. Of course. They're for the grace they of God go I. Yeah. They, they don't... They would- so I think, again, I think it's the, what they're probably trying to do is look for something that is not coming up in an investigation over the course of 25 years of toxicity. That's not what they're looking for because they don't want that to happen to them. The other thing that I think is, and I've, we've talked about this, and who leaked the Gruden emails? Look, there's still a couple of things out there. You're right. If you want to show that you can leak something and it won't fall back on you, leak something big enough that's important that doesn't fall back on you. And then you can say, and I'm not, I don't know if he did it. I have no idea. But if he did, he can say, you can't, I'll find a way to, I'll find a way to get it out there. I do know know about you. I think think most people believe he leaked it. Most people believe he leaked it in the league, I think. 
Okay, but he's not. This is not like leaking that. Really, we talked about this a week ago. It to put out confidential team and NFL material. The commissioner's got to be on the same page. It doesn't mean that he was, but the, supposedly there's like two buttons got to be pushed: one by the commissioner, one by the owner. So if he did, I'm, Goodell's slightly culpable in that situation. Goodell doesn't want that, right? <clears throat> yeah. So there's a lot of. It'll also be you going down if I go down, and no other owner and and the commissioner and they don't want that. And I think that's what Dan's posturing towards is you, you all know who it will be, and potentially they know what it will be. So how do you want to handle it? Well, yeah, I mean, I this, mean is, this a, that's what the story okay was. Corral standoff. The story last week was essentially, and Jim Irsay doesn't give a shit because he's you know been a a painkiller addicted guy, and he's had so many transgressions uh, over the years. He was suspended by the league for six months, and he said yesterday. I'm not. I'm not afraid of him. Come at me. Bring it. But you know, there oh, are there are other people out there. To your point, and this has been the theory all along, which is pretty obvious. Which is, not only do they have um, a lot of owners, probably have a lot of things to hide, but the person they would be running would be the worst person to run because he's so petty. He's so vindictive. He's so litigious. There and 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 they understand that you know he's not the one you want to fuck with on something like this because he will go scorched earth, and so there's always been that. I wanted to just add, you know, you brought up the Gruden thing. You know, that's that's still out there and that's going to get resolved. And if that thing goes to trial, there's going to be a lot of stuff that ends up being uncovered in in those emails. Who knows? But there's also, you know, which I think the Wickersham and the Don Van Natta Jr. story really highlighted. Not that, you know, Tommy hasn't talked about this a lot and we haven't talked about this, you know, over the years. But the stadium is, you know, and that's another thing that bothers me is there, there was a quote in that story from an owner that said, if you can get the stadium done, you know, essentially we're all good. Um, the stadium isn't going to do anything, okay? That's not bringing back this fan base if he still owns the team. He thinks it will because he's delusional as he's been throughout his ownership, um, you know, as he is about, you know, his role in all of this. Uh, but um, there is going to be... The problem is, is nobody wants to build the stadium with Exactly. Him. So if as long as the three jurisdictions continue to deny him one penny, for the new stadium, and then the league refuses to waive the debt limit, and the league refuses to give him what they give to almost everybody, which is $200 million from the league coffers uh, to help him with the new stadium, then he is very much stuck. Now, I did explain yesterday with Tommy, he does have 49% of his franchise that he can sell to another new minority group of shareholders to raise, you know, a minority stake. Let's just say the thing's valued at 3.5 to 4 billion. You know, let's say he can raise a, a billion and a half to 2 billion dollars. Well, he's first got to pay back the loan that he took from the league to buy out Fred Smith, Dwight Shore and Bob Rothman at 900 and, or 875 million dollars. That's, that's um, not an ongoing forever loan. That's coming up. Yeah, so he, he raising, but he's got to find people. 
And there are a lot of people that want that with so much money and all they want is just to say that they're an NFL owner, no matter if they have control or not. But will he be able to find people that want to invest and be an, a, a minority shareholder in this organization with him as the controller? Because it's not something that, you know, he's toxic with everybody. He's toxic with the league. He's toxic with his fan base. He's toxic with corporate sponsors. He's toxic with probably, you know, potential, uh, you know, investors or, you know, wannabe minority owners in an NFL team. So if he couldn't raise that money to help himself, then you're talking about what? A $100,000 coat of paint and a few tweaks to FedEx Field, and he just stays there and plays in the worst stadium in the NFL with the worst organization, and he basically middle fingers everybody and says, yeah, try to get me out. That's possible. We could end up getting there. Like, no new stadium in 2028 or 2029. No plans on a new stadium. They couldn't run him because of Mary Joe White or anything else. And he just says, to hell with all of you. I'm going to continue to own this thing no matter how shitty it is. It would be nice if if there were a group of owners that could go to him and say, it's time because you cannot recover from what's happened here. And by the way, I think you made a good point. The true erosion of this really started 10 years ago. Right right around 2008, 2009 was the beginning of what we ended up seeing accelerate, you know, post 2016, post 2017. Um and then become, you know, uh, I mean it's 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 been racehorsing here for the last 5 years in terms of you know, we went from 90,000 at the stadium and 30 plus, t- you know, local television ratings to then 78,000 and 25 plus something television ratings to now a capacity of 64,000 that rarely, that hasn't sold out yet. And when it does, it's with other fans primarily and local TV ratings that are literally as low as any, um, you know, big time market uh, can get for, for a home team. Uh, you know, I think the Dallas game did well a couple of weeks ago, I was told, I mean, but that's because it was the what's Cowboys. Really, what's, what's really interesting, if you really step back and think about it, it's almost like, you remember when Jim Zorn said he likes to call plays because it, calling plays is fun. Yeah. It's fun to call plays. I want to keep calling plays. And, and it, but you're terrible at it. You think like, is it even fun? I've asked for you, Dan to own this team. I've asked you this and I think, for 10 years. I think the thing is, is I think he's probably trying to survive it long enough to give it to his kids. Yeah. I think that his goal is survive it long enough to give it to Jerry or give it to either of his daughters and, and essentially then let them run it. But that's not now. I, I think it's unrealistic and I don't think the other owners will approve of that at, at this point and, I think you're 10 more years down the road before that's a, a possibility to just give it to one of your kids. So, and by the way, it's, an, un- it's an unacceptable. It point, like, it, it, why are we yeah. doing this? My question, my question really would be if I, I mean, if I'm one of the other owners, I would sit, I would sit down and want to say, dude, it's five and a half billion dollars. And you can go spend a couple years traveling and on the yacht and essentially It'll be done. No one will talk about you anymore. You can spend time with your family. You can spend time completely out of the media. The rest. I, I, do you not think that this would essentially go away if he sold the team? 
What, what, go away. What do you mean? All of these investigations? Any of the Dan Snyder's toxic organization conversation. Yeah. So but he is not going to be pressed. If he sells the team tomorrow, they're just going to drop these investigations and move on with the new ownership. Right. Of course. Yes. It's over. Yeah. There's no criminal. I would assume you know, that it would be over. Or civil so I just cases to be. Yeah. Right. But I mean, they'll. Okay, so we just got five and a half billion dollars. We're, we're going to give all these civil cases two million dollars and just say, just quit. We're done. I'm done. I'm done. I give up. I forfeit. You guys won. You got me out. It's over. I'm going to go enjoy my five and a half billion dollars. It was a great investment. Great return on my money that I spent in 2000. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just don't. I, I don't understand personally why I would continue to go through. What he's going through. You, you're not. You're not the same person. You are self-aware. You're not a narcissist. You don't need validation when you're on your yacht self-aware in, on the Amalfi and Coast. Narcissism are, are. I mean, there's there's some very big differences between the two. But how? I promise he feels it. I what? promise that he wakes up a lot of days and says, "What the fuck am I doing here? Like this is. I guess like." It's never. It's not going to end. It never ends. So why hasn't he and moved on? The other thing that you struggle with is, and again, I don't think there is a smoking gun. I don't know what they're going to find. Right. But what you can, maybe he, maybe everything he understands is not going to get him out. The hard part is, is when you look at the perception of what everybody around you is, and you say there's eight different groups of people telling everybody that you're lying, and you're the one person saying I'm not lying. What do you think America believes? Like, if eight kids say, uh, your daughter did this uh, from all different groups of kids, and my daughter says, I didn't do it, I'm going to say, come on, Bob. Like, I mean, no, maybe actually, you're going to believe you're going to believe your daughter, uh, but you're going to be practical well, okay. about it, and you're going to try to, you know, okay, you're going to make okay, sure. Let's say my daughter's friend. But, it's my daughter's friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I get and, it. And eight other friends are like in, in any situation when everyone else says that you're not telling the truth. Who who do you think people believe? And he's facing that right now. Is is and Yadel can say there's no reason for speculation until facts come out, and everyone can say facts need to come out, and a lot of things have come out. Is is the other thing? And you haven't won, and you haven't had success. It's uh, like. Nobody's on your side, and that makes it really hard. But you know what? You know, the problem, so you're actually um, bringing up something that I think I, I haven't really thought of or haven't expressed, and that is that maybe without all of the um, different things that have happened in recent years, okay, the see, see the, the problem is they do have a couple of legs to stand on when it comes to some of these accusations. There was a smear campaign, okay? An actual, you know, lying smear campaign, we think, um, funded by, initiated by one of his former minority shareholders through this India-based 
media company. And this was the thing that resulted in those internet rumors flying that he had ties to Jeffrey Epstein and, and sex, you know, uh, operations and drug operations before the original post story uh, came out in July of 2020. You know what? That's an awful thing to have happened to him. And I'd, I'd want vengeance too. I'd want whoever initiated that to pay dearly. And by the way, Dwight Char, just so everybody understands, will never, ever be allowed to own an equity stake in an NFL franchise again. Uh, they have not said why, but I think it has something to do with the smear campaign against Snyder. Some of the other things recently, you know, this this yearning for credit for like a total turnaround in their HR department. Again, irrelevant to what we're talking about here, but he wants some credit for that. Um, he, 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 he certainly, you know, if he didn't have anything to do with Wentz or if he didn't have anything to do with actually hiring private investigators, maybe he was mouthing off one night about it, and that's, what, that, that's where it came from in the story from one of the owners uh, anonymously. You know, I, I've said all along, Cooley, be careful. You know, the truth will do. Don't reach into an area that's going to produce a win for him. And my concern about the Mary Jo White investigation is that it might produce a win for him. But it doesn't change the big picture. The big picture is they're all gone. Nobody's left here to support this team. And I say that, of course, that's an exaggeration. But the point is, it's a tiny fraction of what it once was, and there's only one chance to get it back, and that is for him to leave. It doesn't matter if he's right about certain things. Okay, great HR department. Great, this India company made up all this stuff about you. Great, you didn't have anything to do with the Wentz uh, uh, trade. Great, you didn't actually hire a private investigator, even though maybe you told some people you were going to do it. Um, uh, you know, that's all these you know exaggerations and potential lies. I I get it. Like you don't want to be you, you want to, and, and somebody like him probably wants to take them on one at a time. That's why he was so quick to take on the Mary Jo White investigation to begin with. We'll handle this one. We, we're going to get to the bottom of it, and we're going to be transparent with the results. And the league said, no, you're not. You're not investigating yourselves. But the point was is they kind of had this sense that it wasn't going to produce anything. By the way, I still hope it does. Maybe she uncovered something else in the process of this. But to your question that you just asked five minutes ago, ten minutes ago, why would he want to continue to own it? Maybe there was a moment before the last two years when everything really got sideways that he may have considered it. I don't know. But now he's in fighting mode. Now there are things out there that he feels wronged by and that he may be right about. But the big picture, he's not right about. He is overseen as the chairman of the board and the CEO and organization's total erosion and demise. He inherited a sacred trust, a unifier like, the, like nothing else this city had, and he's ruined it. Whether the Mary Jo White investigation produces something or not, whether or not Jason Friedman was lying or not, none of that shit matters. Whether or not he's got a great HR department or not, it all doesn't matter. Even if he's right on some of those things, it doesn't change the fact that nobody wants him to own the team. And if he leaves, you've got a chance. The name thing, again, was still a big deal. And there are people that are never coming back because of the loss of Redskins. 
And, and I understand that. I've said this a million times. It feels like an expansion team to me. You said it on, on the day that they came out with the new name and the new uniforms. You said you couldn't believe how much it hit you. You didn't anticipate that. Think about if you've lived here and rooted for this team in your, your entire you know, life. But the only chance the league does have is to, is to get him out. And I don't know how he could be having fun, to answer your question. I just don't know, unless he's completely oblivious to just how despised he is and just how much he's at fault for ruining it. There's only one constant, people, over 22 and a half years. Only one. He hired everybody. Well, he fired everybody. They're trying to blame Bruce. <laughs> yeah, well, it's comical because the, the majority or close to the majority of, uh, of incidents, of allegations, of things that investigation, uh, investigations ongoing are looking into predate Bruce's arrival. Like that's they're they're doing this sleight of hand thing with Bruce and with the the last two years that is I kind of get it on from their standpoint that there are enough people out there that aren't paying attention to the day to day in 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 detail and you know it's easy to kind of fool some of those people but it's like seriously the last two years. Congratulations on having an HR department for the first time. Congratulations on getting rid of all of those horrible people that were in the organization and hiring better people. You still had the DEA breaking your doors down one year ago, basically to the day. Um, You still completely butchered the Sean Taylor Jersey retirement weekend. You butchered the 2-2-22 rollout. You butchered the Trent Williams added on. By the way, you know that you're one of the 10 additional. We haven't talked about that. I can't believe we haven't talked about that. You got named as one of the 10. I mean, that was a given. And now are one of the 90 greatest Redskins of all time. Are you going to come for that celebration? Mm-mm. I said we haven't talked about it because we haven't talked about it on the podcast. We've talked about it personally. So when they hold this ceremony to announce the next 10 for the 90 greatest, you're not going to be there for it? No. Why? I don't want to. Okay. Should I not ask anymore? That's why. I know. All right. Are we done with this conversation? I don't, I don't have any interest in doing that. I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of being voted in, and I'm very appreciative of my time while I was there with the Washington Redskins. At this point, I don't have a lot of desire to be involved with the Washington Commanders. It's right. not the team name that does it. And you're very appreciative of all of the fans that voted for you. Yeah. Very yeah. appreciative. Okay. And I, I feel for all of the fans for where they're at. And I, I still appreciate that the people that are still fans, that are still diehards because you know, very well, as much as me is even, even at times, if Maybe you almost find yourself rooting against them. It's still the only game you're rooting. Like, I'm not going to go watch a Bills or Broncos game and say, like, ah, I'm a brawl. Let's be a Broncos fan now. Like, that, that's out. You know, there's no other team. So my only interest is still Washington. I just don't know where my interest is if it's to win or lose. Have we talked about the Chicago game and the shot of the two 
fans with the bags over their heads with sell the team written on the bags and the jerseys that they were wearing. Have you seen that? Have we talked about that? We haven't. Did you see it? I did. They had Chris Cooley jerseys on. (laughs) Both of them were wearing 47 jerseys. It was, where were you on Thursday night? I was wondering when we talked on Friday morning, you said that you were headed to, um, uh, you were headed to the airport. You were headed to, yeah, I got a quick flight back. (laughs) You were headed to O'Hare. You said, I got a, I got a, I got a, I'm in an Uber headed to O'Hare on Friday morning. We can do it right now. Yeah, (laughs) I did. Just, you know, I got about an hour and a half to the flight, so I got, I got a quick minute. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it was me and uh, my my buddy uh, Trevor. <laughs> Trevor. Uh, all right, um, let's get to some football talk right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Don't forget to rate us and review us, especially on Apple and Spotify. A five-star rating would be nice on Apple, and a one-to-two-sentence review really helps. Keep them coming. I know many of you are thrilled that Cooley is back uh, doing his film stuff. I know before you get to some of what you looked at on film, uh, you wanted to um, you wanted to say something. So I, I, here is what's super-duper funny about these bags, other than that was you know, I wore the white jersey. Uh, we, we had to get the 
kidding. I saw this. I literally didn't even place that they're both wearing 47 jerseys when I saw it live. Really? <laughs> no. When I saw this the first time, I just saw this, the bags. That's, <laughs> that's bad of me. I appreciate the support. Um, <laughs> is that, the is the, I guess that is support. I mean, they're wearing your jersey. Of course, they're fans of yours. But they also have the bag on saying sell the team, which is also kind of in support of you. I we guess. used to go, this is, this is so funny. Brian Kozlowski was such a good friend, still is. Played tight end with me. Right. Played in Atlanta for eight or nine years before. And any time we were driving to a game, going to a game, and he'd see someone walking on the street with the Cooley jersey, he'd stop and roll down the window and say, hey, there you are. And then he'd yell, Cooley, what's up, man? He <laughs> yeah, just like me. I mean, he did this. You know how it's one of those deals where it's not really funny the first 13 times? <laughs> right, but then it gets funny as it goes like on. This, this, it, yeah, it became the standing joke. That's funny. Oh, Did you know that he dated Rebecca Lobo, the college basketball player? He went to UConn. God? He went to UConn. I, I do. Yeah. They were they were awarded uh, the you, Husky Couple his, Award in 1991. His, are you reading his Wikipedia page? I am. He didn't date Rebecca Lobo. He didn't. You? Oh my God! You put that in there. I uh, no. There's been somebody did. One of three or four of us. It's his Wikipedia never gets changed. So there's been a bunch of times that it got changed by us. Well, it's in there. It writes, in college, Brian achieved notoriety uh, by dating Rebecca Lobo. The couple were awarded the Husky Couple Award in 1991. No, that's my brother wrote that. That's untrue. (laughs) Oh, Wikipedia. Awesome. Let's see. Well, I don't know. Somebody somebody that I know wrote that. Okay. That that he did not. He did not. I, I, when I said I know, I said I know that he went to UConn. There's another – is that – why can't I find this? There's something else if it didn't get changed. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. How about the grizzly attack in Cody? Oh, in, in Cody? Yeah. Yeah. That has uh, to be big news out there. It is big news. Yeah, two college wrestlers here. Yeah. It's amazing. It's not. It happens almost every year here during hunting season. People go up there and get attacked by a bear. It's um, it's awesome. The kid got the bear off of him. Right. He was attacking his friend, who's also a a wrestler. They were in town uh, playing a, a college, I guess, and they went for a hike. And but apparently, this the injuries are very serious. Not life threatening, but very serious. In nature, that's the way they were described. Serious, yeah, very serious in nature, it's, and it happened in nature. I mean, bears are not innately; they should be scared of people. Mm-hmm. Even grizzly bears are normally scared of people. But what happens is they start to associate food or anything left with the smell, with the human scent smell, and then they they lose their fear of humans. Well, they, it's also possible that they came upon, you know, a, a cub, right? They're going to protect their young. 
yep, mothers can be aggressive with cubs, and males will be aggressive with food. And I didn't even read. I I've, should have been reading the Pal Tribune a little bit more this week. I saw it at the at the gas station in Ralston, which we call Ralmart, because it's the only you know mart in the little town that we live in. Right. I've actually, I've, I've really gotten most of Park County, I think, to call it Walmart now. And they're building a new one. They should change the name. It should be Walmart. Um, I'm not sure if they can do that. But so the, uh, there were four college, uh, you know, wrestlers that went for a hike. They were in town to for for a match, um, and they were hiking. The bear attacked one of the pairs of boys that were kind of. Uh, I guess up in front of the entire group, they did have bear spray with them, but they were unable to deploy it because the bear was attacking them before they could get to the bear spray. And the first yeah, guy, the first guy that was attacked, his friend did come and try to get the grizzly off of him. But both of them were were you know they were they were medevac to different hospitals, one in Billings and one. The Cody, uh, the, well, they went to the Cody Regional Health Facility, and then they were airlifted to Billings. Right, but they both live. They they're both going to live, but apparently serious injuries. Although they're not detailed in terms of what the injuries are. Oof. Oh, there's an update to this story. Oh God, there's some pictures of one of them. Oh man. Yeah, the pictures are bad. Yeah, I just saw them of him and his. Oh, this is the update to the story. I grabbed him. I grabbed and yanked him hard by the ear. It got his attention, and then he reared up towards him and described the sensation of the bear's putrid breath filling his nostrils and himself with a sense of dread. Uh, I got there's this is I'm gonna have to read this. I'll be reading this story when we're done. Um, but the pictures of the kid, well, I mean, you know, it could it could have been a lot worse. Okay, uh, let's get to some football. What do you got? Third downs, here we go. Uh, yeah, the Bear Texas stuff's crazy, buddy. Sorry, I'm just sitting here looking at it. Speaking of the, the, bear, yeah, speaking of the Bears. I mean, that's the, it's, there's a lot more up here than there used to be, and it's kind of why I don't really want to go hunting too much in the mountains but yeah anyways so i was asked by a friend to do uh third down from washington offense Mm -hmm. he really wanted to hear it on the podcast the defensive line and then the the comparison between the two running backs so you know where do you want to start buddy well because we did such a long opening segment whatever we do has got to move a little bit but I, I think yeah, let's, let's just go through the third downs. Yeah, I, I mean, you, really you talked on Friday about the third downs, but I want to know why, you know, they have been really awful on third downs the last two weeks in particular. Look, there was a drop pass, I understand that, but they, they've been pretty bad on third down the last two weeks, including on Thursday night. So what's going on? Here, here's what's like, I'm going through this first half, and here's what's crazy as I'm watching this. Because, again, until I, I finally just went and printed the thing off, the GSIS, the game book. Right. But third and seven, third and five, third and five, third and five, third and four, third and five, third and six. Yeah. Really, there's seven. They convert two of them. One's on a penalty. Uh, the other one is on a slant to Terry McLaurin. Third and five is a convertible down. Yep. Third and seven is a convertible. I mean, I mean, 
it's really third and four to seven, or third and five to seven, and then third and two to five are both situations that you can convert. And, you know, it's amazing, like, the the first, the very first third down of the game, the Bears come all-out pressure, and this is all-out pressure with almost zero regard for the back or the tight end coming out of the backfield. Like, the tight end who starts to block the defensive end and then the tackle comes all the way out is, is essentially left uncovered if he just leaks out, which is a fun little oh-shit play that a lot of teams run when teams want to go all out. It's just let the tight end block for a second. It's not a screen. You just They're coming all out. You tight end blocks for a second and a half and turns around, and there's nobody there. Uh, and then they have a backside defensive end looping to try to cover a back. who's almost looping into a zone situation, not even really staying with the back. Where it's crazy, and this happens again later in the game, is they are really struggling with line calls and where they want to slide to protect. So the Bears essentially have uh, seven guys at the line of scrimmage. And then they have a creeping DB over Terry McLaurin, who ends up coming too. So they're bringing eight to three-man route combination. If you're going to have pressure when you're going, and by the way, the creeping guy over Terry McLaurin is clearly creeping. He's clearly going to blitz. He's clearly going to bring pressure. There's no doubt. He is inside shade and hawking downhill. You have number nine and number six off both ends. Essentially, you can block one of them. One of them should be turned free because you cannot block eight with seven. It, 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 it can't be number 53 dead up the gut. The problem is, is they're just not. I don't know what they're doing in terms of protection, and the problem I don't know what why they're doing what they're doing is because nothing makes sense in what they're doing. So I'm assuming there's missed assignments on multiple protections, which means they're just confused with some of these looks. But if you give Carson Wentz one second there, like one and a half seconds, then really he's going to throw the ball to Samuel on a ten yard out route. And it's going to be a huge game. There's a, the, the three defenders covering are in such off coverage right. that there's no way that he doesn't have time to get the ball to Curtis Samuel. It's just he doesn't because you leave an immediate interior pressure. And that when Carson's got a guy right in his face, there's not much he can do, Kev. Nothing on this play. And it's crazy because the tackle goes, there's a defensive end over the tight end who's going to block that defensive end. And the tackle then goes all the way out to the tight ends guy when it looks like he should stay down. The guard turns back the other way. So I'm not sure if they have a left side on or a right side on or what they have on. But right now, there's a massive problem in terms of picking up some of the pressures with communication on the offensive line. They do it on the next third down as Can well. I, I want right to ask you about this third back. down. Because one of the reasons I wanted to ask you to do third downs is because I think there is this sense that on Sunday – they're going to have an out, and the out is that Taylor won't get sacked this many times because he'll be able to escape it. And by the way, he's very good at that. But in this first, first third down, which is you know a jailbreak for all intents and purposes, simple question, is Taylor Heineke able to avoid this pass rush? No. Okay. Of course he isn't. Second. I did, no, no. I mean, is, can he step up, duck his shoulder, to 53 turn. three but tackles the problem, is, is, the problem is is they still have they still have a free rusher off the backside 
So when you are turning one free to all out, which you have to, and that's number nine coming off the quarterback's left side, when you're turning one free to that side, you can't leave the back alone on the blitzing linebacker in the B-gap because he's going to get bowled backwards. So the quarterback would have to turn essentially to his left to avoid this pressure, which he's going to turn right into the free rusher. The way you want to do this is you want to pick a way your line's going to slide, turn the backside free completely, and then the quarterback can drift away from the backside to throw to the open receiver. If I had two receivers to the right side, and knowing that Curtis Samuel is running an out to the right side, I would want to full slide my line all the way to the right, which means the tight end would be on the widest rusher, the edge coming off Terry. The tackle would be on the D end. The guard would be on 53, who comes free. The center would be on 58, who's mugging the A-gap. And we'd just slide everyone right, and then Wentz can drift to his right where everything's blocked up like a semi-rollout, which gives him time to throw to Curtis Samuel, which should have been an easy completion. It's, that's how it has to get picked up to all-out pressure. Okay, forget the pickup for a moment. This is what the, the part part two of this first third down, and and there's a theme that's to, to some of the third downs, but this one I want to talk about. Doesn't Scott Turner have to have? There's so much green grass after the ball is snapped, and the receivers never turn their heads around before to give Wentz any kind of chance before he is buried. Of course he could throw the ball, obviously, but he can't he's got no time to throw the ball. Why can't they have something that is immediately, as you described, hot route, hot route? Uh let's, you know, Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn, let's figure it out and get the ball out yeah, real quickly to somebody. You Curtis Samuel and Wentz to be on the same page of Wentz being able to look at Samuel knowing that he's running essentially that ten yard out to say have some urgency in this. But if he abbreviates that route to six or seven yards, that's great. The ball can be out in time. I I don't know. I still think Wentz has to see it open too long. But essentially, the way I described it is if you're going to slide right, an eight to ten yard out route only takes a second and a half to get the ball out. And if it's coming out of his break a little early, just put a little air on the ball right. and throw it. Yeah. You should be able to get that ball out. Just seems to me Scott Turner I has mean, not figured out a way. Amazingly, yeah. if Wentz just drifts straight backwards, he should be able to float one out to Samuel here, and they would have converted. Oh, he, I mean, he could have thrown he could, he would, the, he, he would have the ball that looked like the kick from the Tennessee kicker to Samuel. There's no The DBs are so far off, there's no way they're breaking on that. That's true, but I don't even know if you really think that. Do you really think he's. No, I, he doesn't I, I even understand. have a chance I mean, to do that. Well, he does if he drifts straight backwards three more steps, almost like a screen. Okay. Minus, it's not what you want. Minus eight. Let's you get want to, to the be next able third to just drift to the right. You want to be able to drift to the right with everything picked up and knowing there's only one three off the backside. Right. You'd like him to just be able to slightly drift right. Should have been easy to accomplish okay. to this. Next. The next third and five, they take a sack. Roquan Smith ends up getting him. Yep. That was really, a, that was after being... the best throw he made in the game, didn't you think, to Cole Turner? And they got out from deep in their own territory? One of the best throws. I think the best throw he made in the game was dropped by um, Curtis Samuel. 
Diami Brown down the middle of the field oh. about the five-yard line. That was Curtis Samuel, I think. It was. It was Curtis Samuel. Yeah. Correct. That was. I thought that was his best throw of the game, but it was a good throw to Cole Turner. Okay. So the the next third and five is is a really what becomes a it's a zone blitz. It's four man pressure, and so they they have five at the line of scrimmage, and Roquan Smith is essentially behind the nose tackle who's covering the center. The nose tackle goes left. The guard should be able to pick up that nose tackle. The center should be able to pick up Roquan Smith and the right tackle and the right guard fan out to the right and take the edge and the tackle over the and this is these are this is an easy, easy deal. Now the back's out on this because I think it's it's a scat protection or, or a straight five man protection. I don't think the back has responsibility to pick anybody up. And if he does, it's the backside defensive end who ends up dropping, so the back would see that he's dropping, and they should be a full slide to the right. The problem is that the center, when the nose tackle goes to his left, doesn't trust that it's a full slide to the right, and turns back, and then Roquan Smith is free. Then the guard's coming off trying to help him, and the right guard's... I mean, these are just simple These are simple protection errors. That said, I don't know where he's going to go with this ball. I mean... I don't like this concept, which is a three-man to the right side where the farthest guy just basically hitches up. The inside guy runs a go route, and or the middle guy runs a go route, and the inside guy runs a five-yard out. They ran this full five different times in third down to a trip side, the same exact concept. They varied the concept on the backside, which this time was Cole Turner running a go route, one-on-one against number nine, which I would have just thrown right now. You've you got to figure out this protection issue, and it, both of these two are center guard issues. So they come back, they throw a slant to Terry McLaurin. It's complete the next third and five. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> like, never again did they go slant to Terry McLaurin on third down. Never again. Yeah. They take their fourth third down as a third and five again. They take a go ball. on uh, the, the concept I just described, they flip it. They throw a go ball to Deami Brown. It's a good chance to have a back shoulder throw because he's covered, but it's one-on-one. Wentz just lets it go a little over his head. Deami Brown's kind of jammed up. He can't get there. Yeah. Uh, the, the third and four on the next one, I would say by alignment when they split McKissick out by receiver alignments, they're giving away too much. They take Terry McLaurin and McKissick to the right. And they tighten them both down, condense them towards the line of scrimmage. When you watch the next third and four, which is somewhere mid-second quarter, both DBs are now playing outside leverage to outside or to tight receivers, and both DBs are driving on two out routes to what is almost interceptions. So really, uh, I think by alignment, you're giving away a lot when you put the back out of the backfield. Also, horrific ball by Wentz. McKissick on that. Right. Oh, terrible. And then yeah. finally, I thought he could have just back, back bodied Terry McLaurin to an outside DB where Terry essentially would have turned around and just thrown it to him and it's a conversion. They get a DPI on a third and five, and the next one is to a corner out. The ball's so late, anyways. He is actually is looking to a slant to a receiver, which an end drops to on his right. He cannot come off of that. Easy one throw slant to his right. DN drops into it to just immediately shift, hitch, throw. He shifts, he turns, he scoots about five sec- five steps to the left, and he lobs one out there to the corner, and it's just slow and late by Wentz. 
end up getting a DPI. Then you throw a go ball that's underthrown to Terry McLaurin. It's at the 17-yard line later in the second quarter on third and six. I don't hate taking the shot. It's just a poorly thrown ball. I mean, the thing is, Kevin, like you get into the third, the third quarter, the second half of this, and uh, it just doesn't get much better. I mean, you have a boot out of gun that uh, it's tough. Everyone's covered, but if he keeps his eyes up, he could hit the back. He just once he's moving, he's not keeping his eyes up. Um, Robinson did run for a third and two and get one. Yeah, you had one a third down at the six yard line where you end up getting a false start, and then you have no chance. And then really the last third and six before they did that little draw, try to draw him off play, he throws short to Antonio Gibson, who runs his route short in the third and six. Like That's one of those ones where you're like, it's third down. Do you know where you need to get? Plus, he throws it to Gibson when really McLaurin's running a whip outside of him and probably is an easy version. He's getting stuck on the first read. So, I mean, essentially, when when you look at it, like I said, it was a lot of just basic cross-concept. It's not just basic crossing concepts, like I said initially, because you watch the game and you see things, and then you watch the film and you see other things. But really, I don't, like, they're trying to create one side. If you get the perfect matchup, you're going to work the one side. And if you don't, then we're going to throw. But I don't like like creating mismatches and I like creating different variations of things and I like different styles of formations and I, I didn't love any of the game plan on offense the pass protection struggled immensely especially early in this game and then really Wentz was wildly inaccurate and maybe it's a broken finger he's been inaccurate a lot but wildly inaccurate through most of this ball game right so you convert what Two third downs? Was that what they were? Yeah, two for 11. Two for 11. Not that good. So here's the question. Thing, really, it, it just kills me. Is it, like You never maintain drives, and you never maintain the ball in, in the first half of that game when you had seven convertible third downs. Right. Seven. D- down and distance-wise, true. 100%. Favorable down and distances. Yeah. So here's the key question with Taylor Heineke getting ready to start and people excited about, you know, the possibility of the offense being jump started on Sunday against uh, Green Bay. How much better of a game would the offense have had Thursday night if Taylor Heineke had been the quarterback? And Cooley will answer that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So, Cooley, on Thursday night against Chicago, if Taylor Heineke had been the quarterback in that game Thursday night, would it have been a lot better? I don't know. Maybe two more conversions. Okay. And maybe it's maybe some of this line size. So here's the other thing. Right. Is there's been these conversations of can Wentz make changes at the line of scrimmage? Right. Well, when you go to the line of scrimmage on the first third and seven, you don't know the Bears are going to all out you. So you don't always just go into a third and seven. Sometimes you do. Sometimes by down and distance you can. You know, a team will bring pressure and all-out pressure at a much higher percentage here, so we'll max protect in a third and seven. Sometimes you know that. I haven't watched enough of the Bears, but they would have. And so maybe they went in knowing we're going we're gonna to max protect with a full slide and, and run a three-man combination. But other times you get surprised by what the defense brings to the line of scrimmage. That's where a quarterback has to say, like, Ringo, Ringo, or whatever you want to say. Or he's got to give a max call and bring the, keep the tight end. And there are things a quarterback can help with that as well. Yeah, I mean, so what you're saying is it's very possible that some of these protection issues are things that Wentz has the ability to read the defense and fix before the snap. On both of the first two sacks, there was missed assignments by the, by the center or guard. Right. But, but, or but, tackle, I'm not sure exactly you th- what. You know, you can see that it's not a cohesive protection. So they are the, unsure it, yeah. of where they're moving to protect. We had a new center in there. Tyler Larson uh, started the game the other night, and we had, you know, he's the third center, the fourth center now, right? I don't know. At this point, I've lost count. Um, but, but do you think that that was more on the center or more on Wentz? Or you don't know? I think it's more on the center and guard, in my opinion. Okay. It, it's my best guess. All right. Tell me, uh, on the defensive line, who the best player was. Before, before that, here, here are my thoughts okay. really quickly offensively. Yeah. The one thing I liked that they did, and the reason they were in third and five and third and four, was because they got Terry McLaurin involved in first down situations. Mm-hmm. I really didn't pay too much attention to that in the game, but there's a swing screen early that they mix in where he motions deep in the backfield and, and swings out. There's uh, fly sweep on a first down for a four six, or five yard gain. Yards, There's a yeah. reverse for a four, four or five yard gain. There's a, there are four or five different plays where Terry's involved, and they are positive first down plays against the Bears defense. That's also where uh, you, get, uh, you get frustrated. Is on four of these, it was second and five. Right. Like, it doesn't have to get to third down. Right. Well, before that, that first sack, um, that, or one of those sacks, maybe before the Roquan Smith sack, I mean, he threw a ball to J.D. McKissick on second and five that literally was like a, a, a fast ball at his feet and behind yeah. him. His, he threw another one to McKissick on a first and ten. It was a fast ball at his feet that's incomplete where McLaurin's screaming open across, like a five yards across the middle. Yeah. Again, we know that he was hurt. He he had the bicep going in. He hurt the finger in the second quarter. It was broken, and then he hurt his ankle. So, but the funny thing is, and I talked about this on Monday or Friday. We did t- together actually. Is that he hurt his finger, and yet we're not sure whether or not it was his finger or just normal inaccuracy from him because he's been a- been inaccurate a lot of the year. 
Mm-hmm. By the way, that's part of Taylor Heineke's problem. He's not. He's very inconsistent with his accuracy. So we'll right. see. Um, I wanted to ask you. The last thing I had to offensively. Yeah. The Wentz block on Roquan Smith may have won them the game. Right. If Robinson, if he turns that block down or isn't in a position to get to Roquan Smith, mm-hmm. Robinson takes a two-yard loss, and I don't think they overcome that to score. Yeah. Now they would have been able to kick a field goal for a 9-7 to lead. Nine to seven, but the way it played out, the Bears yeah. would have kicked a field goal for a ten to nine win. Right, that's true. If it had played out exactly that way, um, I wanted to know. Uh, and we'll just finish up with this. I want. I thought it was an outstanding game from the defensive line, and we talked a little bit about it on on Friday. But after watching the film, like who stood out to you the most? Well, Payton and Allen continued to stand out and were awesome throughout the game. Um, I thought both were disruptive. Both played exceptionally well in the run game. Uh, they, the entire defensive line really, I thought, did a very good job maintaining the pocket and keeping the quarterback in the pocket where there weren't real run lanes. You know that Fields is going to beat you for a couple scrambles, and he's going to get a couple different first downs, but you're not going to get killed by him. And he did end up having a lot of rushing yards, but one's late in the fourth quarter, and yeah, he gets out. But two of the scrambles early are both – uh, Jamin Davis and Cole Holcomb missing plays where they had a chance to get the quarterback on the ground. Exactly. It's not necessarily D-line, it's blitzes. So I thought the D-line was really good. Uh, Sweat was consistent in just beating the crap out of their left tackle, number 70. Yeah, he's a rookie. He's great with his hands in the run game. He was great with his bull rush. He was great with his speed rush. All the guys were great with their hands in their bull rush and their speed rush. And they were also really good at keeping him... You know, under control and maintained on boot stuff on the edge. And I actually wrote as a joke. Um, funny that they're so good over the last two weeks in the boot game with Ryan Kerrigan as the coach because Ryan Kerrigan was the guy that got beat on the boot. <laughs> True. <laughs> but I thought, you know, essentially they bullied Chicago up front. There was not a lot of movement. Some of the bigger plays were running backs off script or, or making things happen or the quarterback – really doing a good job to make things happen. It, it was a, a really good game, I thought, throughout yeah. with the D-line. And, and then even, you know, there's – like Allen had another sack that got called back because there was no legal contact, illegal hands to the face by St. Juice, which would have helped them again. They ended up – that was the drive they ended up going for fourth and 16, which is insanity. Right. But ultimately, I thought I think the D line's disruptive. Um, who's not? Ninety six is not a bad player. He's a good player. Ninety seven, Abada made some really good plays. Did a good oh. job shedding and getting off in the run game. I thought essentially D line was the the only thing you'd be excited about coming out of that game. James Smith Williams is ninety six. And by the way, on the play before the fourth down. Um, I'm sorry, the second down in the first and goal, he's the one that deflects the pass, and I think that might be a touchdown to Mooney. Uh, and so uh, Smith-Williams has actually played uh, played well. And then 91 Ridgeway, but I agree with you on Obata. Obata's flashed a lot this year when he's been in there. But when they went with the nose tackle um, in their five defensive line, or if you want to call it a 3-4, um, he, 91 was the nose tackle, Ridgeway, and I thought he did a decent job when he was in there. 
Yeah, I thought Ridgeway did a decent job. Oh, and the one, the, here's the other thing I, I, I really do want to mention, because I said you'd only say a lot of it, you'd say D-line. That's, that shouldn't, that's not fair. I, did, I will say that coverage was good throughout the game. Coverage was good throughout the game. There were some opportunities for him to make throws, and he did have some open receivers. But more times than not, he didn't. And if he was going to throw the ball, it was going to be contested. Like, we talked about the play early in the game where Herb Street said, this is an open receiver in the NFL. It is an open receiver in the NFL, but he isn't open by even a half a yard. You could throw it out in front, and he might be able to go get that. But it's not, it's not a given. So I thought coverage was good through a lot of this game. Well, remember, they're, they're, they're not very good. They're not a very good team with very good players on offense. So that's part of it. But I agree with you, including the St. Juice play on the final play of the game. I looked at that on the All-22 multiple times. I think he makes a really good play. I understand that Mooney, if he grabs it out of the air, reaching over St. Juice and has possession, it crosses the plane. But I yeah, thought St. Juice played play. it well. If you put a, if you put the other team in, in situations where more times they have to make the hero play, yeah, then you're 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 doing you're doing good, right? I mean, Mooney would have had to make the hero play. Saint Juice was right there. He made a great defensive play. I think the play before on Forest was clear pi on, on Forest, but they didn't call it. No. So, and then maybe they would have thought about running the ball. Because it's still amazing that they didn't run the ball with 52 seconds left, first and goal. Um, I I really am sort of blown away by that. All right, last one. We talked a little bit about this on Friday, but I think Gibson looks really good this year, and I thought he looked really good the other night. And yet Robinson's getting most of the touches. Hopefully that'll change. Maybe it'll even up. What did you see with Robinson and Gibson? Well, the hard thing with Gibson – is that he had zero touches in the first half. And right. So even if Robinson's the guy, Gibson's one of your best five in terms of guys that need to get touches. So he's got to get involved. And if that's finding a, a different style backfield, I know that you think you have three receivers and, and dynamic weapons, but it might be more of a two-back offense. And there's a lot of things you can do out of a pistol or out of gun or even with two backs from under center and like some pro set stuff where – it's going to take some creativity, but you can get it done. And I think both of them are physical enough that if you ask the other one to block, that they'll block for the other one. The thing is, is Gibson can't not be involved in the first half of a ball game. Yep. When you see them both, when I'm watching them both play, you know, the positives from Robinson is he's, he's a guy that can get downhill. He's powerful. He does not get tackled by the first guy. He doesn't get leg tackled. Um, and I, I think he's going to continue to get you positive yards. He also had a couple plays early in the game that were really not well blocked. You know, there's a couple zone plays early, early in the game where, like, Andrew Norwell is doing the Mike Shanahan faux pas. If it's zoned to the left, we're never turning back to the right. Like, you're never – you're just going to continue on your track to and the let, left. And let the back So yeah. there's some inconsistencies in how some of the zone plays were blocked up front. So it's not just on him. It's not like I, – I wouldn't say – what do you average, like 1.7? I wouldn't say that Robinson left out a boatload of yards right. in the first half of that game. I, I wouldn't. And, you know, I, I think that he's a guy that will get better at getting downhill with his cuts more. You know, when you look at some of the – maybe some of the things you want to work on is – 
his cutbacks, he's too slow to get to the cutback. It's not put your foot in the ground and get the cutback. And then when he's pushing frontside and making his first cut, his cut is not just a hard, sharp downhill cut. And that's what I like with Gibson is when he is like he's out running to his left and he sees a lane, then he's going to push it hard upfield. Robinson's drifting on his cuts just a little bit. Right. So that was that was something I would say. Um, look, I, I think when when you see Gibson, though, he is quicker. He's a little bit more decisive with his cuts. I'd like to see him get the ball more. Um, he's at laterally or outside-wise, he's getting to the edge quicker. He's no getting doubt. it quicker. No doubt. To the outside. I, I don't think that's really a question. Not Like, Robinson's drifting a, a, a little bit more than you'd want him to drift. I would say with Gibson, we talked about the screenplay that was a poorly thrown screen. You still have to make one miss there. He's got to find a way to avoid one. I know, but the ball was so low. If he, if I understand uh, the ball was low, and but he had, he had to reach. two steps before DB. Okay. It, it, he would want that one back for sure. But And I'm not going to hold him. I would hold the quarterback accountable more than the running back. But I would say if you're an elite ball carrier, you're going to make one miss right there. Just one. Touchdown. All right. You got anything else in, so, your, in your notebook? Oh, yeah. Um, McKissick might be the best. I love McKissick. Love him. McKissick's got a knack. He's a good ball carrier inside. But they, they really the way they I think they're going to have success is with those with Robinson and Gibson each splitting 15 touches. They're not that different. Okay, let's put it that way. You're not one's not dynamically better than the other to say uh, this is the guy that's got to get the touches. I think it's I don't too. I think it's too early for me to say that because we haven't seen enough of Robinson Jr. I just feel strongly that Gibson is an excellent back, and that when featured as he was last year during their that during that four game winning streak, he can really impact their ability to you know move the football on offense. I would agree, and I would say that it, like, it's hard to say that he lost a job. Well, the fumble, I mean, the fumbling, the fumbling, you know, last year, and he hasn't fumbled this year yet. Um, but the fumbling last year, obviously, you know, he got benched in the Carolina game before coming back and having a phenomenal second half. Uh, right. All right. Um, Friday. All right, pa- Friday, we'll review, uh, preview the the Packers. Shall we? Will. All right. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you then. All right. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Tommy's with me tomorrow.